Hey everybody, it is Jeremy England with the Ohio Virtual Academy Music Appreciation Podcast. And I'm coming to you solo today because my usual partner in crime, Daphne, is out testing. And we know last week we had talked about um, we had missed a week and we are going to plan better. And it's just this week, it was not in the cards for us to be together at the same time to be able to record. So I just decided to highlight somebody that has been, like, I've been kind of learning a lot about uh, in the past couple of months, and that is Leonard Bernstein. So episode 60, um, we're talking about Leonard Bernstein. And um, I, I'm going to start this episode off by saying that Leonard is a complex man. <laughs> um, I did not know much about him beyond him being a really famous conductor before starting research on this show. Um the reason that I've been coming becoming more interesting in him is uh, YouTube. You know the great algorithm that it is started suggesting video clips of him in rehearsals for some West Side Story, uh, a re-recording of that, and just watching him work uh, was pretty fascinating to see like the rehearsal process. I love knowing how things work and how things are put together. So like watching him craft this performance uh, with some very famous people was just interesting to watch, especially with the orchestra he's playing with, uh, conducting, and the singers that he's leading. Um, it's interesting to see them struggle, even being so accomplished. I know that sounds kind of mean, right? <laughs> Watching people struggle with their craft, but it helps to remind me that no matter how polished something ends up being, there's always difficulties in getting there most of the time. I know that from being a performer for many years, you know, like not every performance is perfect. In fact, uh, there are way fewer perfect performances than there are performances that something went wrong. So uh, he started popping up. And when I decided, or when Daphne and I were talking about who we should talk about, I was like, okay, let me me do a deep dive on this person. And... um, when I read his Wikipedia page, which is generally how we start our uh, learning about somebody, we just kind of – Wikipedia is generally a good overview for us to see a topic or a person. And then we really start to branch out from there. And as I was reading his Wikipedia page, I was like, Daphne, check this guy out. He's pretty awesome, which I'm sure some of you might know. Um, but then I went to some more resources and started learning more about him um, and I became less enthusiastic, and we'll get to some of the reasons why that is. Um, but it just, again, highlights that people are complicated, and culture is complicated, and what we celebrate and who we celebrate becomes very complicated when somebody is super successful in one area of life, but are kind of a huge letdown in another area of life. Um, so as we get into this, just understand people are complex. Um, and I think that this is a person that's worth talking about for his musical accomplishments, but it also opens up the conversation of how we react to that in light of, uh, you know, developments that come out after uh, some time. But let's start off what he's really known for um, in the musical world, and that is conducting. Um, that's and Again, this is how, like, I generally associate his name is a conductor. And just a reminder, a conductor is somebody who stands up uh, in front of an orchestra or singers and interprets the music 
or has a vision or a conception of music and conveys that to the performers and they kind of make that come to fruition. Uh, one of the first things we talk about in classical music for our classes, the composer versus the conductor. The composer is the person who puts the music together. The conductor, they're not always the same. In fact, you know, once people are dead, they're not the same at all. Uh, the conductor brings that vision to life using all kinds of different tools and knowledge and research and understanding of musical times. And Leonard Bernstein is one of um, the best uh, in this you know, recent history. Um, he is renowned not just in America, but in like the whole world. As we kind of go through some of these orchestras that he has conducted, I mean, it's literally all over the world. Um, a, an interesting fact, he's like the first American to conduct a major American symphony. You know, a lot of times they, um, uh, uh, the conductors and leaders would be from different countries. Uh, you remember, in America is generally, the United States of America is generally young, especially in the world of classical music and symphonies. So um, that was a huge deal, the New York Philharmonic. Uh, his conducting style is very over-the-top and off-putting for some people uh, and um, just full of movement. And um, he really is like somebody who's bringing forth the music with their body. Like everything is a part of what he is doing. And that is kind of what makes him so fascinating to watch. Like music is... Um, obviously primarily an auditory experience you listen to it first but to watch somebody lead this experience uh you know the person that's not making any noise is the conductor in a symphony performance uh but he is very much a part of the performance with the way that he conducts um for just the performances and um apparently according to different accounts it's not he was like that during rehearsals too. So it wasn't like just a show, right? He threw everything he had into his body into making music with these musicians. So I think that's um, part of his appeal to some people and part of his repulsion <laughs> to others uh, in the classical world. He is also, he's also really well known for education and advocacy of music, and classical music. And when I say classical music in this term, I'm meaning like the broad sense of everything that like a symphony would play, which could be anywhere from Baroque to to classical to romantic, which was kind of his niche. Uh, and uh, this education comes in many different formats. Uh, he, gave, he gives and gave, not gives, he gave a lot of lectures that were recorded. Um, he did television spots for... Uh, like lectures, uh, so lectures for um, like Harvard and organizations like that, schools like that. He also gave a couple lectures on TV, which turned into like a kids series uh, to introduce music. And with the goal of introducing classical music to young people, but also doing it in a way that appeals to their parents as well, right? Because young people, it's good to get them excited, but the parents control basically what a kid listens to for the most part, right? Uh, radio. <clears throat> he did uh, some radio spots, did some talks and stuff that way. And of course, uh, in the classroom, he led conducting classes and had students that he he taught in the art of conducting. Um, and where I first was ever exposed to him was the musical of West Side Story, which is um, 
a reinterpretation of Romeo and Juliet that is set in uh, New York City with opposing gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, and um, it, sh- it tied in a lot of issues of like uh, gang violence and racism and immigration, uh, and it's a great show. The music is fantastic. The The music and the, the lyrics are fantastic. The story is obviously a classic. When you take like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and just kind of reimagine it to current times, uh, when you have that base, of course, the story is going to be wonderful as well. Uh, he composed other stuff. So he was the, the musician, the musician, the composer for the music. Uh, and this is what he's most known for in terms of his uh, creation uh, that most people will know him from, and it's still goes on today. You know, I our high school did it, um, and it still gets performed and and all that. So he is a very accomplished musician. Um, the longest stint he had was the New York Philharmonic, um, and that's where this is the first American-born conductor to lead an American orchestra. He's won tons of awards. Um, so let's just kind of start at the beginning. His real name is, uh, well, his birth name was Louis Bernstein, and he was born in Massachusetts to uh, Ukrainian Jewish parents who immigrated over um, from the Ukraine. Uh, his grandmother was the one who really insisted he be named Louis but his parents always called him Leonard, and his friends called him Lenny, and his family called him Lenny. So, after his grandmother's death, after his grandmother's death at eighteen, uh, he changed his name to Leonard. So I, I, I don't know that might a, a good thing. You know, he waited till his grandma had passed to not upset her or whatever. But we know him today as Leonard Bernstein. Uh, his father is. It's interesting when we talk about like these famous musicians and these kind of people that they can have some troubles with their parents accepting who they are. We've talked about this in some of the other composers. Um, or like the barrier of entry can be a little bit difficult. Uh, his father is named Samuel Bernstein, and he owned the Samuel Bernstein Hair and Beauty Supply Company. And um, it's interesting – they were known, it says here, the New England franchise for the Frederick's Permanent Wave Machine. And so this this machine and this franchise of this machine uh, helps them get through the Great Depression. So, uh, you know, he's born in 1918, I believe. So, you know, the Great Depression, stock market crash and all that. This company was able to sustain them through this time. Um, and as a kid, you know, sometimes you're like Mozart. Mozart had a father that had him like in violin lessons at two years old or whatever, you know, like very young. Um, and everything is steeped in music. But uh, Leonard, he pretty much had music on Friday nights because of the radio, which was the primary mode of mass communication at that time. And then um, the congregation Mishkin Talifa uh Tefila, sorry, in Massachusetts, uh, that's, he got exposed to music through there. So the radio and once a week live performances. And it wasn't until his sister Helen, uh, or sorry, not Helen, um, Clara brought her upright piano. Uh, uh, sorry, let me get this right so I say it right. His aunt, Clara, gave them her upright piano. And uh, once he got that, and I can relate in this way, 
if there's something that makes noise, you're going to like try to figure out how to play it, right? And that's what, that's what Leonard does. Bernstein, he teaches himself, he begins teaching himself piano and music theory, and it like takes hold of him, and he just is like dying to have lessons. He wants him so bad, uh, but his dad initially was not for it. He opposed his interest in music and tried to say, I'm not going to encourage this. I'm not paying for your lessons. Uh, I'm not going to do it at all. And something something switched. Um, Sam took her, Leonard's dad took him to concerts in his teenage years. And eventually this led to like opening up the possibility for him to to go into music education. So... There are some battles of a will, and it just seems like doing this thing together of going to concerts uh, can really, when you put somebody in their element, you can kind of see how much they love it. And uh, Daphne and I, when we talked about what she does at the orchestra, we talked about uh, the Pops Orchestra, which is kind of like the more fun orchestra. Um, but this is one of the first orchestras he goes and sees, Boston Pops Orchestra. And uh, this is Bernstein's quote. He says, To me in those days, the Pops was heaven itself, I thought. It was a supreme achievement of the human race. And um, so obviously this, um, this performance and seeing this performed, especially Bolero uh, and composers like Gershwin, makes him like, excited. And somewhere this, you know, his father changed his mind and said, okay, I'm going to support what you're going to do. Um, and he does, he goes to college. Um, he goes to Harvard for college, which is pretty prestigious, <laughs> right? Uh, he, he did very well for himself. He played with a bunch of different people there. He, uh, played with, uh, the Harvard Glee Club and as some of the Harvard Film Society silent film presentations, um, he mounted productions of his own stuff. Uh, he is just out there doing work and putting the time in and collaborating with other people. Um, his daughter talks about like how he interacts as a composer, and she kind of describes Leonard as like um, not really having the ability to be a great composer. Or maybe this is Leonard himself, but like because you have to be so in by yourself like you're putting out your own thing a lot of the great composers do but leonard was such like a social person that some of his best works comes when he's collaborating west side story was a collaboration between uh composer uh lyricist uh a choreographer and uh somebody else so like he works very well he wrote in high school he wrote the class song with a friend um, he is playing piano duets with a guy named Donald Davidson at Harvard. So he's a very collaborative person, which makes sense why he is this conductor. He's working collaboratively with a whole group, right? It's not just him toiling away at his music by himself for somebody else to do. He is in the process, in the trenches, so to say, um, to work there and to bring out something great. Um, so... As a sophomore in Harvard, so still very young, he meets this guy named Demetria Metropolis, um, and is, he's a conductor, and he is a major influence in why Bernstein decides to become a conductor. 
And he was going to go, Bernstein was going to go with Dimitri in, to Minneapolis for an, uh, to be an assistant conductor. Uh, but there was union issues, so he wasn't able to do that. So shortly after this, he meets this guy named Aaron Copeland. And if you don't know who Aaron Copeland is, he is um, a very important American composer. Um, he is somebody that takes like Appalachian type songs and American folk music and puts them to traditional settings. He composes a very popular version, uh, Simple Gifts. Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. Right. Um, so Aaron and Bernstein meet. They're sitting at a, a recital and I guess they hit it off and Bernstein is invited to his party he goes and like shows off and plays uh, one of Copeland's pieces, a very challenging piece, uh, piano variations, um, and impresses the crowd. You know, he's kind of like the guy with the guitar <laughs> at the party, but he does it with the piano and he impresses people. And um, Copeland becomes kind of a, an advisor in ways. It says he never studied specifically. He wasn't a student of Copeland, but uh, he was definitely somebody that. Bernstein would look to um, and, and says his only real composition teacher, even though it was more of a mentorship and not like a, a student-teacher relationship you might think of in like the formal sense. So he graduates Harvard. So all, he's meeting all these famous people <laughs> at, while he's in school. Uh, he graduates Harvard in 1939 with a Bachelor of Arts. Uh, and after that, he goes to this place called the Curtis Institute of music in Philadelphia. And he studies with this guy named Fritz Reiner, uh, which I think this is funny. It says Fritz Reiner, who anecdotally is said to have given Bernstein, uh, Bernstein the only A grade he ever awarded. So Leonard was like obviously a very talented and gifted student at this time. He studied with all these like really important musicians uh, in different areas, piano, orchestration, counterpoint, um, and score reading. So all these things as like a conductor are important to know. So like piano helps you as a conductor play parts and figure parts out and hear how things sound together. Um, orchestration is how to organize different written parts, um, which if you have a full orchestra is not a big deal, but you can like, it helps you to conceptualize and understand how different instruments fit together, which changes the tone. It's kind of like an artist learning how to use his tools. Um, counterpoint is a voice leading style, um, which is like how the mo the notes move, uh, which just trains your ear. And then score reading. So score reading is like, all of us learn how to read books, right? And uh, all of us are taught how to read words on a page, which eventually turns into stories. Like we put words on a page together, they turn into stories. But there are different like strategies to read and different ways to understand how a story rises and falls. Some of you might remember like the build up, the climax, and like you know, kind of that whole arch of reading or a, a plot line. Well, score reading is a lot of the same type of things. Even though it's not like words in a story, music is a story. So learning how music works and how the rise and fall of music works and how like different parts go together and how different musical elements have structures with cadences and how there's motifs and motives and light motifs and all the stuff that fits together and being able to recognize that very quickly 
uh, and to recognize it within the context of a certain era of music, and then to recognize that within the composer's interpretation of the that era, you know, and then pulling that into the modern context. This is all part, this is a very important skill that not a lot of people can master. Uh, the musical equivalent of like everybody can read in class, right? There are people that can stand up and they can read a book out loud. And when they read it, it can sound very monotone and very boring. But then you get amazing uh, orators who can just read the same thing, but you're just captured by it. Right, two people can say the same words, but one person just has something. That's kind of like what score reading is. Two people can read the same score, but somebody will just see it like so different, and in such a way that draws out like what the true emotions are inside the music. So uh, he goes to school with these very famous people, like I said, and he. Um, he graduates the school and he like goes off and starts his own well he moves to manhattan so he's in philadelphia right he studies in boston and then he moves to new york city where he lives in manhattan very various spots in manhattan uh he supported himself by coaching singers and playing the piano for dance classes so new york city has a lot of art, a lot of culture, and a lot of dancing. There's Broadway, right? And they all need people to help them prepare. Like Today, you could probably get a CD with songs, but it really helps when there's a live piano player uh, to help read the music. So he, that's, this is how he makes his work, basically helping other people be great musicians. He also transcribed jazz and pop music um, and published his own work under the pseudonym of Lenny Amber. Um, and so transcribing jazz and pop music is something, you know, somebody puts out a song and the people who are writing jazz and pop music, uh, don't always write down their music. Um, and so to be able to transcribe it and to figure it out and put it down what that music is, the way that we understand it in our understanding of music theory allows other people to reproduce it, uh, to play it, you know, um, it's basically like a pop band like Lady Gaga puts out a song. Somebody can sit down and listen to a Lady Gaga song, write out all the notes, write out all the different parts, and then somebody who can read music can take that and interpret it however they see fit. Uh, so this is what he does. He kind of like is a working musician. Like the kind of the before he was famous, he had to pay his dues in a lot of ways, you know, supporting other people and doing kind of grunt work. <laughs> uh and somehow he gets this job. Well, I mean, he went to Harvard and another very prestigious music school for his graduate school, and he studied with some very famous people. So he didn't somehow get this position. But um, he is appointed the assistant conductor to Arthur Rodzinski of the New York Philharmonic. So the New York Philharmonic is a huge orchestra in New York City. This is 1943. And the assistant conductor is kind of like the person that is there just in case, but there's also other duties they have to do. Um, you don't get like a lot of big experience in terms of like conducting the full orchestra because that's just not your job. You know, you're not in the big leagues yet. You're just the assistant. You're riding the bench, basically. And um, Bernstein has this amazing opportunity. Uh, there's a guest conductor to the New York Philharmonic named Bruno Walter. 
he comes and he's preparing this orchestra and he comes down with the flu. <clears throat> and when you, when you have the flu, it's miserable, right? And so he's unable to conduct this performance. Uh, and so Bernstein, with short notice, no rehearsals, steps up and does – he conducts works by Robert Schumann, uh, Rosa, Wagner, and Strauss. So very challenging, important composers in the musical world. He just steps into it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my gosh. Could you imagine? I could not imagine at all. Um, but he does it, and the New York Times the next day puts his puts the story on the front page and says, it's a good American success story. The warm, friendly triumph of it filled Carnegie Hall and spread far over the airwaves. And... um Part of the reason it spreads so far is this radio, or this this performance happens to be uh, broadcast nationally on CBS radio. Uh, so here's a relative nobody. And when I say that, I mean, in, in like the, he's very talented, obviously. He's making a living doing music. He gets the assistantship to the New York Philharmonic. But he really is like, I mean, he's not famous by any stretch of the imagination and not even really well seasoned uh, at this stage. And overnight, overnight, by dumb luck, uh, he is just catapulted into the stratosphere of success. And this is an important thing to note that uh, I think we've talked about this in other episodes that there are a lot of really, really, really good musicians out there, a lot of really good musicians and a lot of very good performers. And sometimes there is just luck involved in what you're going to do. And the true great ones, there's two ways to really get there. You work your butt off. uh, But really, the way to make it big is to catch the break or to recognize when there is an opportunity and not choking on it. And Bernstein (laughs) did not choke on this opportunity. I mean, he just blew up. Uh, And so... The next two years from being an assistant conductor, uh, he conducts 10 different orchestras in the United States and Canada. Uh, And what this does when you're a conductor, you know, like the Philharmonic, when he's there, uh, amazing opportunity. But when you have this spread out opportunity, you get to direct and conduct different orchestras, so different people and different repertoires. Because each area and each symphony has a kind of their their rotation or their their strong suits or whatever. Um, so he gets all this experience and exposure to go lead different orchestras. Um, he also uh, has his practice. He's a very accomplished piano player. He would conduct uh, concertos, con- piano concertos, where he's a soloist. He would conduct the orchestra from the piano. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like a player coach. Like... Uh, I'm going to be the coach, the manager, and the starting point guard for basketball. You know, it just kind of, it kind of works. Um, and so he just, he blows up. And he just, it's like a steady rise to just uh, conduct all these different spots. So the New York Symphony, uh, he was the music director of the New York Symphony. Um, he went overseas and conducted the Czech Philharmonic uh, let's see, he, uh, the Royal Opera House, he did a premiere Fancy Free with the Ballet Theater at the Royal Opera House in London. Uh, he conducted opera professionally for the first time, which means he was getting paid like 
in this spot at the Tanglewood with the uh, at Tanglewood with the American premiere of Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. Um, he was the guest con- conductor uh, for two concertos for the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Uh, he also played a solo. He was a piano soloist for that same orchestra, the NBC Symphony Orchestra. He goes over to Tel Aviv and conducts the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, um, which was the Palestine, Palestine Symphony Orchestra at that time. Um, he conducted an open-air concert during a war. Um, he had a great relationship with them for like a long time, actually, the Israel uh, Philharmonic Um you know, he makes a, t- a TV appearance with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Orchestra at Carnegie Hall. Uh, this had an address by Eleanor Roosevelt. So, I mean, like, he's getting put in these huge positions, and he's getting exposed. The media is really helping him. You know, first he had the radio. That's how he shot up, which went with the newspaper. Now he's, like, on TV with these huge orchestras with people like Eleanor Roosevelt talking before the concert um, for big events. This, she spoke this one-year anniversary of the United Nations General Assembly, uh, the ratification for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, he premiered his, friend's Aaron, his friend and mentor Aaron Copeland's preamble. Um, that was, that, that was uh, on NBC television. Um... So, I mean, he is, and this is just like very shortly after his career, you know, so he conducted the Philharmonic in 1943 and all that stuff he just did was in the 1940s. So in seven years, he traveled the world. He got put on TV, he got put on the radio and he got put in debuting very famous people's works. So here comes the 50s. Uh, The 50s, he, he, um, writes some music for Broadway's Peter Pan. He talks about Charles Ives, who is a um, a very important composer. Again, uh, he debuts some of his old work. He uh, he was a visiting music professor for four years at the uh, at a university. He founded a creative arts festival. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is. Um, He's a juggernaut. He almost may be a workaholic to some people. Um, he just he every opportunity that he had, it seems like he jumped, and the opportunities just kept coming. And so he just it seems like reading through this and researching him, he just never said no. Uh, in 1953, so that's how the first two years. 1953, he writes music for a wonderful town, uh, working. Oh, basically, he wrote the music for Wonderful Town. It won five Tony Awards. You know, uh, it just kind of like, it just happens. In 1954, he starts this television show, television lectures, called Omnibus. It was uh, a live lecture. So this is a man who's standing up like a a college class, and he's doing this to the nation on TV. He gives a lecture entitled Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where he explains everything that is that is happening with members from the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Uh, which is, you know, cool. He's bringing music to the masses, to the masses who might not ever have been interested or exposed to them. He includes like original manuscripts. He um, he had nine more omnibus lectures, which uh, had jazz conducting American musical comedy, modern music, J.S. Bach or Johann Sebastian Bach, and grand opera. So he's taking all these talents 
and putting them out there for the world. Part of the reason I definitely make this podcast is so we can talk about stuff that interests us, stuff that we like, you know, and this is what he got to do, but on a much grander scale and probably with a lot more knowledge uh, than we have. But it's just, it's like interesting to him and it is like important to him. Um, so during this time, he's making the show. Uh, so 1955 to 1961, he has these series of like 10 lectures. Um, in 1957, he is named the music director of the New York Philharmonic. He replaces Dimitri. So remember this guy who wanted him to come to Minneapolis earlier? Uh, he replaces Dimitri uh, Metropolis. And I don't know if I, I'm saying his name correctly. Um, but they had about a year and a half or so of transition. And um, during this time, they took the Philharmonic on tour to South America. Uh, during his first year, Bernstein does a season-long survey. So orchestras have seasons, kind of like a baseball season. Uh, that you know they're playing, and then they take time off. Part of the reasons that Leonard Bernstein interests me so much is this idea and this focus on American music, uh, because we are such a relatively young nation. Highlighting people who put out music from this young nation, um, I think, is important. Uh, so I think he spent a whole year putting this out there. What makes this special, not as necessarily the highlighting of American music, but um, themed programming was pretty new at this time. So taking one idea or one topic over season uh, wasn't like really a thing. Um, but anyways, he held this position so from for about 11 years, and was he had a sabbatical in 1965, so 1969 he was um, done as the official director, but he came back like f- throughout the rest of his life and conducted over and over again the New York Philharmonic. So he kind of just was like, I'm going to do it <laughs> whenever I want kind of thing. Uh, this is my orchestra, you know, my symphony, but I'm not going to be in charge of it. Uh, so kind of like all the fun stuff without all the headaches, I'm sure. What a what a spot to be in, <laughs> right? Um, he also, during this time, uh, right about the time he takes over the, this position of the New York Philharmonic, he starts this thing called uh, Young People's Concerts, which this grows out of the series of 10 lectures, the omnibus uh, programs and lectures. Uh he puts on this educational workshop um, and those these workshops and these concerts uh, are lauded, heralded, heralded as uh, the first and probably the most influential series of music appreciation programs ever produced on television. And they were high and they were highly acclaimed by critics. Um, so, he won a Grammy for one of these. Uh, he releases uh, lectures. Some of the lectures released something called, uh, on a recording, uh, Humor and Music, for Best Documentary or Spoken Word Recording, other than a comedy in 1961. Um, I mean, it was so popular that other countries dubbed his voice and like, dubbed their language over top of it. Um, and you can, you know, they're released by DVD pretty recently. Uh, so he puts on, I mean, he's like, he's advocating and he is working for the advancement of a music, of music in America and music around the world. Uh, he writes during this time again, you know, he is not just conducting or directing the Philharmonic. This is where he writes West Side Story, um, and just kind of 
blows up in the composition sphere. Uh, and then the end of the 50s, he took the Philharmonic on a U.S. State Department tour. So if you ever play like the game Civ, Sid Meier's Civilization, uh, there's like different ways you can win <laughs> and different elements you can get. You can like get all kinds of gold. You can have war. Uh, you can have the science race. And one of the winning, winning strategies is culture. And the reason I bring that up is because um, culture and cultural icons can be huge, um, hugely impactful around the world. Right, people want to be around people that are influential, and culture and music is one of those ways. There's all different. We, we talk about culture in this sense. There's all different kinds of ways of like musicians and artists and writers and poets, and these people can be used in um, diplomatic roles to go and spread good cheer and good news to different countries. Um, <clears throat> So he goes over to uh, Europe and the Soviet Union, Soviet Union uh, where he is just performing music over and over again to these different countries. Uh, he performs Dmitry, uh, I'm not even going to say his last name, I'm going to try it, I'm going to try it, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony in the presence of the composer. So the composer writes it. Bernstein takes it and interprets it and performs it, and he gets to hear his music performed, which is pretty cool. Um, and so they keep going around, and and uh, they just like spread the goodwill of America to the different countries. <laughs> if that's good for you, or that you think that's good or not, it just it is. It shows that uh, whatever civilization is sending these cultural icons that we are a cultured society, we value art and human expression. Um, so the sixties comes along. Um, and this is where he really kind of leans into, uh, Mahler, who is a very, he, he's a famous composer with very bombastic, uh, choices in his music, I guess to say. Uh, There's a very famous Mahler symphony where you you basically you hit a big box with a very big hammer, like a big wooden hammer that's bigger than a sledgehammer you hit a box with. So very big, very uh, over the top, which really fits Bernstein. Um, and I, I mean, like, not just fit. He, this is a quote from Bernstein about Mahler's music. It says... He showered a rain of beauty on this world that has not been equaled since. And so a big reason that Mahler is popular today um, is because of Bernstein. He, he records all his, all his symphonies uh, and all with the New York Philharmonic except the eighth, which was recorded with the London Symphony. You know, so he just like is pulling in different groups to record these, these symphonies. Um, it says that the, the success of these recordings, because it's uh, Bernstein doing these, the, the success of these recordings and the television talks and all the work that goes into promoting it is uh, an important, if not vital, part of the revival of interest in Mahler in the 60s. So uh, this is a very personal uh, endeavor for Bernstein, and it shows the power 
that one person can have over another person's career in the classical music world. You know, like if you're a very talented composer, but nobody performs your work, then you really aren't that popular. Kind of like Bernstein, you could be a very talented piano and a music interpreter, but if he never gets to conduct other people, then he's really a nobody. Um, I mean, he's somebody, everybody is somebody, but in the music world, he's nobody. But he also does this for a Danish composer named Carl Nielsen uh, and uh, Sibelius. Actually, there's a a software named after Sibelius. Um, but the power of Bernstein helps these people's careers. Um, but he also, like I said earlier, champions American composers like Copeland, Schumann, William Schumann, and David Diamond. Um, and just getting these people out there uh, to expose their music. And that wasn't just classical either, right? He has... Uh, Jazz, like David uh, Brubeck, um, he championed some of his music. Uh, so, like, he just is—he's a powerhouse of a person. Um, he actually became kind of friends with the Kennedys, uh, which is interesting. Uh, with Jackie Kennedy, uh, he played for um, the funeral mass for Robert Kennedy's or President Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy. Uh, Jackie writes him after that. You know, Jackie's kind of like the quintessential first lady uh, to a lot of people. And uh, he, when Robert Kennedy dies, uh, Bernstein performs a section of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. And ja- this is what Jackie writes to him after the funeral. She says, when your Mahler started to fill, but that is the wrong word because it was more this sensitive trembling, the cathedral today, I thought it the most beautiful music I had ever heard. And um, it is, you know, so moving, obviously, that the first lady would write this conductor about the music that he led. Um, And then after President Kennedy is assassinated, Leonard Bernstein conducted the New York York Philharmonic in in a nationally televised memorial featuring Resurrection Symphony by Gustav Mahler. Uh, This was the first televised performance of that symphony. And after that, this symphony, Mahler's symphony, becomes like a part of the repertoire for the Philharmonic's National Mourning. So if there's any National Mourning, um, this will be Mahler's symphony will be used in that sphere so he goes on after this in these awful moments uh, and just keeps working. He just keeps going. He uh, directs a, an opera, uh, Franco Zeffirelli's production of uh, Verdi's Falstaff. He directs a, an opera, which is dealing with the instruments and the, the singers. <laughs> he made his debut at the Vienna State Opera. Uh, so you just he is like... He just can't stop. He's just good at everything that he touches. Um, so there you go. He goes all over the world, like we said earlier. I mean, all over the world and just keeps going um, to uh, like the London Symphony, the Vienna Philharmonic, places like that. You know, he goes to Asia, um, the Israel Philharmonic, the National Orchestra of France, the Boston Symphony. Um, you know, all the while, too, going back to the New York Philharmonic to conduct their 
occasionally. Uh, in 1973, he taught at Harvard as a visiting professor. He, he was appointed to the Charles Eliot Norton Chair as Professor of Poetry um, and gave six televised lectures on music with musical examples from the Boston Symphony. I think you can find some of these actually uh, on YouTube. Um, so he just talks, I mean, he talks about music to these elite musicians at this elite school, uh, which is just quite fascinating. Um, and here's another story just to show you, like, the power of Bernstein. <laughs> uh, there's this cellist and conductor uh, named Mr. Mstislav Rostropovich from the USSR in 1974. USSR, for the younger listeners, is the Soviet Russia. It is It was Russia plus all the other countries that are separate now um, in Eastern Europe. It was a, a huge thing, a huge deal. Um, Rostopovich was a cellist and conductor, was a strong believer in free speech and democracy. And because of this, he basically got banished and exiled in all of his tours and his concerts at home in the USSR and abroad were canceled because the USSR was a communist country. It did not believe in things like democracy or free speech. So basically this cultural icon was canceled by the state. He was not allowed to travel. He was basically banned. He, he couldn't go anywhere. He was a prisoner uh, for all intents and purposes. Ted Kennedy, uh, he is um, a senator at this time, Senator Ted Kennedy and his wife Joan. Uh, they go and visit the USSR. And at Bernstein's urging, they mention Rostropovich, Rostropovich's situation to the the communist party leader and two days later <laughs> two days after this Rostropovich was granted his exit visa so this man who is in prison for the most part at home not able to do what he loves not able to perform speaking for free speech and democracy uh, at the urging of Bernstein uh, got this guy out of the country which is you know this is a man who who makes music. You know, some people will really look down and say, he's just a conductor. You know, what do we need this for? But culture, culture is so important for democracy or for diplomacy. Um, so, uh, continues to tour the world, plays Israel, Israel Philharmonic. Um, he works at the Coral Art Society of Washington. Um, he does... Uh, stuff at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and at Carnegie Hall in New York. He conducts the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, and finally, for like all this work, <laughs> this long decade, in the 1980s, he receives the Kennedy Center honors uh, for basically everything that he does. Um, but that didn't stop him. He didn't like culminate there. He kept going. He taught, composed, and produced the occasional TV documentary um, and just doesn't uh, I keep saying this but he doesn't stop I'm just amazed at, like how much he accomplished uh, 1984 this is where I'm exposed to him not in this year but the recordings and the rehearsals uh, of this endeavor he is doing a recording of West Side Story which is 
he writes the music, but this is the first time that he's actually conducted the entire work. Um, and the recording doesn't have the full cast. They um, they cast opera singers for some of these parts, which don't like fit the musical style necessarily. Um, and because it's Bernstein, it was still like a huge bestseller internationally. Um, but they made a documentary, a TV documentary called The Making of West Side Story. And um, also a DVD, and I found it on parts of it on YouTube, which I think is just like, it's fascinating to see, again, this performance. World-renowned opera singers, world-renowned conductor, very talented and capable musicians. And you get to see the process of what that looks like on a very high level. I often think of like basketball and like these professional basketball players. There's five like starters that are fantastic. How do you coach like the most talented people in the world at something? So to see that happen uh, is truly a fantastic endeavor to watch. So his final live performance um, uh, was in uh, with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And he performs Benjamin Britten's 4C interludes from Peter Grimes and Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. And during the third movement of Beethoven's Symphony, he has a coughing fit and he leaves um, during the standing ovation, or during the ovation, and just obviously in pain. This was released on CD, uh, and it's called Leonard Bernstein, The Final Concert. Um, and that was basically the last time he ever conducted. Um, so he didn't die like that night or anything. <laughs> it's just important to note that, that this was the last time, 1989. So he starts in the 40s. 43, right, is his conducting debut in 1990. Sorry, 1990, he he conducts for the last time. So what a career, you know, what a, a fantastic musical career. Um, but he did, um, he died in his apartment in New York um, of a heart, atta- a heart attack brought, brought on by mesothelioma. He was 72 years old. He was a heavy, long-time smoker and had emphysema from his mid-50s. So, um, you know, that, that kind of did him in, unfortunately. Um, so, I mean, when he died, he, he goes through the city streets and people, construction workers, removed their hats allegedly and waved, calling out goodbye, Lenny. Um, he is just, I don't know, he's kind of a cultural icon. You know, there's nobody else like him, called like the once-in-a-century type of musician. Um, So his personal life, though, uh, was not nearly as um, rosy, I suppose, as his um, professional life. Uh, He is married to, or he was married to an actress named Felicia Cohn Montiel-Legerie. Sorry, I said that name so wrong. Uh, An actress. Um... Despite him, well, he was married. He had uh, three kids, and there are suggestions that he chose to marry partly to dispel rumors about his private life, to help secure a major conducting appointment, following advice from his mentor Dimitri, the guy who wanted to come to Minneapolis and the guy who he took over the New York Philharmonic for. This advice comes because the con- orchestral orchestra boards are still 
conservative, pretty conservative. And um, the reason this is an issue is because uh, Leonard Bernstein is gay. And um, his wife, Felicia, acknowledges this. She says, um, you are a homosexual and you may never change. You don't admit the possibility. You don't admit to the possibilities of a double life. But if your peace of mind, your health, your whole nervous system depend on a certain sexual pattern, what can you do? Um, so a, a very interesting life uh, to pursue his music. Uh, he chose to to marry a woman for uh, a lot of reasons. Um, he wasn't uh for for the most part it like worked out well you know um very everybody who it seems it seems according to some of these articles that they seem very much in love they did they did love each other nobody suggested otherwise they had three children together um there are reports of brief extramarital affairs with young men which everybody seemed to know about. Um, so just kind of like was, um, but in 1976, um, I guess that he could no longer really conceal, uh, that he was gay and he left his wife Felicia for a, a little while to, to live with somebody else or to live with a man. And during that time he was gone, she, his wife was diagnosed with lung cancer. And because of that, Bernstein moves back in and cared with her or cared for her until she died in 1978. And because of this, uh, Bernstein apparently has some, some pretty awful guilt over that. Um, and he kind of lives a little bit recklessly after that. Um, but no matter what, like it didn't really seem to matter because of who he was, you know, he just kind of like was, that's, that's Leonard Bernstein, you know, like that's like the, the cultural icon, you know? Um, but as, and none of that's bad. None of that, I mean, that's just is how the life, how the, the world kind of worked. Right. Uh, in 2018, which is about three years ago now, the, the me too movement was, really big and um the reason we're going to start talking about this is because Leonard Bernstein is kind of um caught up in some of this um uh, there's accusations of like uh well, let me read this one um I'm not here's a quote this is from uh an article uh or, or a web blog which is based on other articles I have some linked in the show notes uh, and this is surrounding Leonard Bernstein's 100th birthday in the hashtag MeToo era. Um, it says, uh, he would have turned 100 on August 25th, 2018. So that's why they're talking about this, these celebrations. And given the average age of a listener somewhere between 75 and dead, uh, i.e. not delicate children, I'm not sure why announcers and interviewees never mentioned that Bernstein was famous for, one, having sex with older established men while he was young and climbing the career ladder, and two, having sex with young men in the same industry once he himself was old and established and in a position to advance his uh, sex partner's careers. So... Uh, it's just um, when there's power dynamics involved like that uh, some of the decisions 
can become very questionable and predatory at the worst. Uh, so this person we kept talking about, Dimitri Metropolis, um, apparently is one of these people that were uh, one of the older men that Leonard uh, was entangled with, uh, apparently Aaron Copeland as well. And then uh, during, like I said, during his marriage, uh, people were pretty much aware of. Um, and then he met and fell in love in 1973. This is so he was a little bit older with a younger man uh, and moved into his apartment with him. Uh, and then once, his, once he, his, he and his wife reconciled, uh, after she passed, he went back to that same man, again, who was younger than him. Uh, apparently, Leonard Bernstein was a fan of open mouth kissing with tongue involved. Um, just kind of like um, that was his thing. <laughs> I, and I don't know why that would be anybody's thing. Um, and so we read this quote. This is, from, this is called Conduct Unbecoming in the great composer's centenary year. What should we make of his very reported be, er, of what should we make of his reported behavior and that of other conductors by Benjamin Ivory. Um, it says uh, Bernstein's habit of tongue kissing a vast array of friends, acquaintances, and total strangers was another issue. Quote, the intrusion of daddy's tongue was an occasion less for revulsion and more for weary eye-rolling, end quote. One might try to take this habit more acceptable by relating it to Bernstein's long-standing desire to reach out to the multitudes as if inspired by the verse from Schiller's Ode to Joy, sung in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So, uh, I mean, he just kind of like, it was who he was, um, and that does not make it right by any means. Please don't hear me trying to defend that. But it just, like, people just accepted it. And to us now, that might seem just bananas, and it probably should. Um, to me, it seems weird that you just go around open mouth kissing people. Uh, but it seemed like just that's what he did. But that's one part of it. Um there's other parts where he uh, allegedly would sexually harass people. Uh, he would um, – there's stories of him groping people. Um, you know, he just – this wonderful side of music that he has uh, and this brilliance of music does not translate over apparently into the social cues of how you should act around other people. Um and so when this this 100th anniversary of his birthday, or the, what would have been his 100th birthday, uh, people really tried to gloss over some of this stuff. Some people tried to blame it that he was physically attractive, so he could not be guilty of harassment. Um, so, like, people tried to, to wash over this stuff. And um, I don't know what we do with that necessarily and um you can do with that what you would like but i do think it's important to note that with this side of genius of bernstein there is a side of great human tragedy and flaw and uh even taking away like the sexual side of stuff. He was a workaholic. He was an insomniac. He uh, talked brashly. So if you didn't have thick skin for like curse words and stuff, uh, you might not make it. He said what he meant. He just kind of like the very stereotypical 
mad scientist genius, you know, just in his own world. Um, but uh, pair that with the power dynamics of, uh, especially as he's an older male, you know, possibly advancing the careers of people underneath him for favors. Uh, it just, it's not a good look. Um, and it is something that I think is worthy of being talked about and something worthy of being uh, mentioned. Uh, he, so despite all that, you know, he like, uh, he did a lot of, um, he did like a lot of charity work. He did a lot of work for, um, he raised money for like the Black Panthers. Uh, he, um, worked for protesting the Vietnam War. He was labeled as a communist, uh, by the government, um, you know, so complex person, um, but I don't think that we should give him a pass for the bad stuff he did just because he was a musical genius. It's a great responsibility to be uh, a decent human being. Um, and I don't know if that is more difficult for some people or, you know, when you have such genius and such power because of who you are. Remember, he's a cultural icon that could get people freed from communist Russia or the USSR, right? <laughs> I mean, he has that amount of power. Uh, so if there's any indication that he used that uh, for favors, then um, we should not be okay with that. So uh, if you're interested in checking out like how he conducts, there's tons of YouTube videos um, you can listen to any number of recordings of symphonies he's conducted and just and, and check it out. And, you know, if you have any thoughts about any of this, by all means, reach out to us. Our website is ohvamusic.com forward slash uh, or sorry, anchor.fm forward slash ohvamusic. Our Twitter is at ohvamusic. And my personal Twitter handle is at Jeremy P. England. Uh, if you're listening, if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, make sure you share it with people. Give us a good rating in whatever podcast player you are listening to. And uh, just reach out to us and let us know what you think. Do you like Leonard Bernstein? What do you think of like the, these accusations against him? How should we react to, to that? Now, so many years later, now, you know, he's not here to defend himself or, or anything like that. So... With that, y'all have a great day, and we will be back next week, hopefully both Daphne and I together. Have a good one.